You're listening to Offscript, the Atlantic Canada Politics Podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. This week on the show, I speak with Deputy Mayor of Halifax and Councillor for District 7, Way Mason. So the mobility and transportation chapter, the number one rule, the law of Halifax since 2014, is we will encourage and support alternatives to the single occupant vehicle. Like there's beautiful language there that we basically ripped off from the 1970s San Francisco plan yeah. and rewrote for our context and, and modernity. Okay. But, but what it says is cars are the least important thing. That's the law in Halifax. Not, not important, but, they're, but we're supporting all the other alternatives. And, uh, and that was a huge change. This, that, that was a, the, the, the anchoring policy piece that said the city was no longer going to focus on being auto-dependent. I wanted to bring Deputy Mayor Mason onto the show to serve as a bit of a bookend to the conversation we started with Kelsey Lane several weeks ago from the Halifax Cycling Coalition, uh, where we chatted about the efforts that her group put into lobbying for a protected bike lane on South Park Street, because I wanted to hear what the politician side of that story sounds like. We talk about that. We also talk about what exactly it is that a deputy mayor does. We also talk about how Way handles decisions at council and votes at council when there are passionate and persistent voices on either side of an issue within his constituency and how he balances that with his own past commitments. What kind of what kind of superpowers does the deputy mayor have that <laughs> a simple councillor does not? So the deputy mayor, on paper, in the act, right, the city exists as an act of the Nova Scotia legislature, and on paper, the deputy mayor's job is basically don't travel in the same car as the mayor. So if he dies, you become acting mayor. That's on paper, right? Like it's, it doesn't spell that out, but uh-huh. like your only job is your job is if the mayor's unavailable to chair a meeting, the deputy mayor chairs the meeting. And if the mayor leaves for whatever reason and is unable to continue as mayor, you become acting mayor. Uh, uh, for the uh, up to six month period before a by election, if it's more than six months before the fixed election. Only other thing that the deputy mayor does is if the mayor is away for any kind of extended period of time, you are effectively acting mayor and you're signing legal right. documents. So I oh. become deputy mayor. And we did some kind of land transaction. It was something around, I think, Bears Lake or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I get I get a call that I have to show up at the mayor's office, and and there's this giant pile of paperwork that requires your signature, and I'm the kind of guy who I have to read enough to know that it's actually something we debated, and it matches the form. So that's like you know, 45 minutes to an hour of pawing through these papers for the first time before you sign it. Well, right. the legal people are over in Duke Tower waiting for it, uh, and that's the other job is to act as the as the mayor. That's the official role. Right. The way it works now, though, with with uh, Mike Savage's mayor is he includes the deputy mayor in the agenda setting meeting, which happens uh, uh, the week before council. So the the agenda goes public on Wednesday, and there's a meeting on the uh, a week before that about what's coming up in the next two agendas for council, hmm. also for budget. Uh, and uh, he includes the deputy mayor in. He has a priorities meeting that he starts the week with uh, nine o'clock on Monday morning. So the mayor and the deputy mayor never listen to Rick Howe. They're in a meeting room uh, <laughs> with the mayor's senior staff. It's all political staff. CEO is not there. And it's right. about what are the issues we're trying to deal with this week and where are we at on long-term issues. Would it be fair to characterize it somewhat like the, on a smaller scale, but like the president-vice president relationship and that the degree to which the deputy mayor is included is kind of dependent on the pleasure of the mayor? 
Totally. And and I say to my wife all the time, my job is a lot more like the HBO television show Veep than it is like <laughs> House of Cards or something like that. And I am the Veep, right? I, you, you have only as much power, authority, influence uh, as the mayor, frankly, allows you to have. Uh, and uh, part of how you earn that, the currency with which you earn the good favor of the mayor in any uh, municipality is the mayor has far more requests to uh, speak at uh, anniversaries, events, weddings, whatever, right? right. Everything, and uh, than he can ever do, than or than he or she could ever do. And the deputy mayor steps up, and I did, I think, uh, sixteen speeches in the first three weeks after I became deputy mayor on behalf of Mayor Mike Savage, and I did three or four breakfasts. And uh, a whole bunch of, and then all those other meetings I talked about get inserted into your schedule. Right. Uh, you, uh, and then on top of that, uh, you, you've got your the executive meeting, which is the executive standing committee. And so there was a point in uh, late December where I realized I hadn't been to the gym since I became deputy mayor, and I'd gained about ten pounds because you're both eating rubber chicken dinners and not having time to exercise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like on paper, uh, the responsibilities are thin, but it can be practically much more than that. Yeah, practically, it means you're in the room and the CEO is presenting the potential agenda and you're asking pointed questions. And and my the way I've been playing it, and I think that Steve Craig did the same thing when he was deputy mayor, because it's only a one-year appointment right. uh, in Halifax. And that's a choice we've made. In Kings County, for example, it's a two-year appointment. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the way we do it is we're looking on the mayor's behalf and council's behalf at the things that are coming up in the agenda and talking to the staff about, well, you know, that's a big issue in, you know, Councillor Mancini's district and how's that being handled and, okay, well, we should let him know. And part of what started happening a lot when, when Steve Craig was deputy mayor and something I've tried to carry on is you, you contact the uh, councillors, if there's something that's been really hot and their residents are really interested and say, well, this is coming up on the agenda. I haven't seen the, we haven't seen the reports. We just have the recommendation mm-hmm. or, or that it's coming when we're doing agenda setting because uh, everybody gets the reports at once, but you're giving them a heads up that it's coming so that they can be, I guess, mentally prepared for what's about to happen, right. good or bad. So I wanted to ask you about uh, the bike lane on South Park uh, mm-hmm. or the bike lane to be on South Park. and. Uh, people that have listened to uh, our last few episodes will have heard a conversation I had with Kelsey Lane from the Halifax Cycling Coalition, and uh, I wanted to uh, get some of your perspective on how that actually came about. And uh, my understanding is that it wasn't an issue that was uh, immediately a green light for for you uh, when it first came forward. And just wondering if maybe you can just tell us the story of where sort of that came from and. Um, I guess if that's a fair characterization and if uh, how something that significant ends up getting ultimately greenlighted uh, by council. Well, there's so many layers to that I need to unpeel from a political point of view. So, Please. So everything changed in October 2016 because we elected a more progressive council. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about the South Park bike lane before the election, I would say to someone like Kelsey or Ben Wedge or any of the other cycle activists, uh, Eliza, uh, that, uh, well, I'm not sure we want to go that far or that fast. And part of that was because I hate going to council and having good ideas shot down, right? Mm-hmm. And then after the election, we had the consultation, the, the now somewhat infamous consultation uh, with the uh, residents of Almond Street about the proposed Almond Street bike lane. And I walked out of there with Councillor Smith and Councillor Cleary, Sean and Lindell, and 
and then subsequently had a conversation with Tony and Sam from Dartmouth. And it was like, why are we even consulting? If we have a plan, if we have a network where we've consulted widely with thousands of people, and this is the only road that that can go on, then we should probably do it with minimal further consultation because we've already consulted. And then the second thing was Sean sent out an email that basically said, I don't want to vote for any more bike lanes on major streets that aren't protected. I think that we should vote down any more painted bike lanes unless it's on a side street. Hmm. And we were all like, yep, we agree. We're at that point. So the political complexion of council changed. And that allowed us to be more aggressive about what we might want to do. Uh, I still had concerns, especially in the preliminary phases when they were looking at maybe taking all the parking off of the southern portion of South Park Street. That's a residential neighborhood of mixed use. So you've still got single family homes facing South Park Street. You have single family homes that were turned into condos or apartments a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You have a couple of really ugly, monstrous 1960s and 70s apartment buildings. And, and, uh, uh, through no, because there was no planning to put a driveway when there were no cars. A lot of not, a lot of those don't have any driveways, and and you don't right. want to take away all the street parking from these single family homes if it means that those single family homes are going to be less likely to be able to survive as single family homes or those like one or two units because there's now no parking anywhere and it's no longer as attractive and maybe it means it's going to be torn down or converted into apartments or smaller apartments or whatever. Right. So. The, a big question for me was, do we have the volume south of South Street that requires uh, uh, a separated bike lane? And it ended up that the analysis showed that, it, that we did, did have that. What do you mean by do we have the volume? Well, you mean of cycling traffic? Uh, no, of car traffic. So one of the big things, one of the indicators that the consultants been using that our staff has started to use is uh, if there's only a couple hundred cars, for example, this is a ludicrous example, but if there's only a couple hundred cars a day on a road, do you put a separated bike lane there? Probably not. But if there's 7,000 cars, which is what I vaguely remember, oh, okay. there so are a day on yeah. South Park, you put a separated bike lane. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, as you know, so we have a different political uh, picture on council. We have uh, you know more detailed analysis coming back from the consultant, and then the final piece was the integrated mobility plan having passed. Right, the fact that we had we're only weeks after, mm-hmm. you know, and the integrated mobility plan was a huge win for council in the city that started when we adopted the regional plan in 2014 that jennifer watts when she was council of the north end and with my support fought to make sure we didn't just have in the past we had what they called the road network plan and it was which roads are busy roads that should be paved often Hmm. and be really wide and have trucks right and we wanted to move to an integrated mobility plan how do all the different modes walking biking bus Mm -hmm. taxi car share cars all single occupant vehicles all fit together and a big thing that happened in 2014 is, you know, and, and, and Jennifer and I had a lot of authorship over this, is we convinced staff that we would fight the adoption of the regional plan if they didn't change the goals of the transportation section. So the mobility and transportation chapter, the number one rule, the law of Halifax since 2014, is we will encourage and support alternatives to the single occupant vehicle. Like there's beautiful language there that we basically ripped off from the 1970s San Francisco plan Uh and rewrote for our context and and modernity. But but what it says is cars are the least important thing. That's the law in Halifax. They're not not important, but but we're supporting all the other alternatives. And uh, and that was a huge change. This that that was a the 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 anchoring policy piece that said the city was no longer going to focus on being auto dependent. 
Right. Do you think people know that that's what that plan says? No, no, they don't. And when I speak to planning students, I actually have a slide where I'm like, wouldn't it be great if Halifax had a plan like this? And they're like, yeah, that's the kind of thing this city doesn't do. And then you're like, well, we did that. We did that four years ago. It's awesome. But and then they're like, ah, you're a jerk. But yeah, it's a it's a good uh, uh, that policy framework led to changing the road network plan to an integrated mobility plan. And suddenly, you, I remember Bob Bierke and Eddie Robar, the former heads of transit and planning, having a conversation with Jennifer and I saying, we're never going to hit the modal split targets if we don't start thinking about how we're going to get people out of cars and doing this and this and this. Mm-hmm. As Jennifer and I walked away, she goes, did that really happen or am I still in bed dreaming? Like, are our <laughs> se- most senior staff actually talking about how to change the way people use the road network right. and get around? And then, so the that you know, long story short, the end result is integrated mobility plan says this is your modal hierarchy that bikes and pedestrians are more important than cars. Not that cars aren't important. Not that we're not going to consider parking. Not that it's a war on cars, but that we have this way of evaluating and we have this priority. And that supported the active transportation plan that said South Park bike lane. And so we went for it. And I think it's awesome because if we can get a separated bike lane on Bell Road and it looks like they're going to do the paved path on uh, Aaron Street this summer when they're paving it, mm-hmm. then we're actually going to have uh, a, you know, like w- within two years, we could have connected bike lanes all the way from Canard to Agricola to Inglis Street uh, and, and South Park, which is awesome. That's a huge north-south connection. Let's take a quick break. and We'll be back to this conversation in a minute. Offscript is produced by Springtide, and if you enjoy listening to what we have to share each week, we encourage you to support our work through a small monthly contribution at springtide.ngo slash offscript support. Your support means we're going to keep bringing you podcasts like this one and the ones you've been hearing over the last few months. It means we'll be able to put more time into finding and sharing more interesting stories about people trying to make an impact through politics without destroying themselves or the fabric of democracy in the process. It's been a while since we've asked you to contribute, and we know our audience has changed. For every current supporter of the podcast, there are another 33 people just listening to each episode. If you're one of those supporters, thank you for your contribution. You have kept us going. If you're one of those 33 people just listening, welcome. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, this one is on the house. But if you've been listening for a while now, we hope you'll give us your support. We're hoping for small amounts from each listener. You can contribute three, five, seven dollars a month to support the podcast. You can do that over at springtide.ngo slash offscript support. Something that makes our appeal different than those you might hear from other podcasts is that ours comes with a nice perk. Because Springtide is a registered educational charity, we offer our supporters a tax receipt, which means that you pay less on your taxes when you support us. So if you want to support us, go to springtide.ngo slash offscript support. I'm curious to hear you talk a bit about the how of the changes that have happened. Obviously, there's some documentation in place and you know se- several steps to getting to something as specific and tangible as, you know, there's a bike lane now or there's going to be a bike lane. But I wonder if you could maybe describe from your perspective the role or the importance of the work that ha- comes from, I guess, the pressure that comes from outside of council, um, the activists. Ver- activists and advocates and, you know, smart people who've studied it uh, and how the, I guess, that's balanced with the having people who support it from within council and having people um, like to, to what degree would 
this be possible uh, well, without well, having that pressure from the outside and, and maybe vice versa as well? Like, is it, it if it's more than buses and uh, Hellfuck Psycho Coalition and groups like the Little Easy, they put a lot of pressure both during uh, the regular life of a council, but also in the lead up to an election and an election, they help define and broaden what maybe is is going to help define the election. So uh, people were definitely uh, more and more talking about bike lanes and talking about transit and talking about changes that they want to see happen. And I also think that as the city's becoming younger and we see that we're attracting more and more young people, like they're just demanding stuff. They're, they're, I think people are coming here and we've turned that corner on youth retention because, not because we've done a good job and the city's done, because mm-hmm. we can paint a picture of, hey, we have a plan and we're working toward this glorious goal. So come and help us with the struggle of making the city the dream that we want it to be. And, and so th- those groups, those outside groups, help to define the dialogue around not just an election, but in between elections. And that creates that space where, you know, without all those groups going all the way back to 2014, I don't think that uh, the regional plan would have changed. I don't think I would have gotten elected. I don't think Linda mm-hmm. and Sean and Sam and Tony would have been talking about these things and getting elected on them. I mean, right. people are making these promises during elections and then they're trying to deliver on them. And then once you're in the cycle, the election is over. Without the pressure of the cycle coalition, it's easy to just kind of go, yeah, 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 we'll do that later. And that's kind of the cycle we were in with the previous active transportation plan. Like we had a great active transportation plan from four or five years before the current one that very little was built on outside of the rural, like the easy mm-hmm. little hang, hang fruit. Like we'll do a rural trail here and we'll paint a bike lane over there and that's it. And once you get into the core, you're talking about really disrupting parking. You're talking about taking more and more very valuable space where there's tens of thousands of cars going by instead of hundreds of cars going by. Hmm. And so you need to show, yeah, the public wants that. And that's what those that's what those activist groups do. And is there, I mean, we may be getting into territory where it's tougher for you to answer, but I'll let you figure that out. Is that more important for in a place like, I was going to say HRM, but Halifax, where there's a, you know, a, a large rural constituency that maybe doesn't necessarily so easily see their... Uh, the benefits of downtown bike lanes. It, does that help in making the case for this kind of thing uh, with councillors from those areas, or does it tend to take the form of, well, these are the downtown councillors, these are the councillors in the core of the city, so we're going to listen uh, to them. The rural and suburban councillors, for the most part, have been very supportive of this. It's kind of like the older councillors and one new councillor who don't support a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, the model I think that we're landing on right now, it used to be uh, that it was very divisive uh, rural urban divide thing, I think was a lot realer. I haven't experienced it as much in 2012 to 2016. And as we kind of move forward right now, I, I don't see that as much. It's more if you're comfortable as the area councillor and you want that thing uh, and you think that your residents want it, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to support you in that. Right. Uh, and that puts the onus more on the area councillor to be to be right and to be adequately representing the what the majority of residents want or being able to make the case for that. I mean, uh, not all my residents by any stretch of the imagination want a bike lane. And a lot of my residents, I got a lot of emails about South Park and other bike lanes. And there was this uh, Spring Garden business thing, which I, I think is more easily refuted. But uh, the... Um, 
the email I get a lot is, uh, well, this is a really old city full of seniors and and, and an aging population, and and it's not fair that you're investing all this money and stuff for for young people, and and when there aren't any. And I would send out the article that ran, I think, in Metro News about how, you know, the census data shows we're actually one of the youngest cities where younger, our average age is younger than the national average for a city. We are a very young city. Mm -hmm. And so, so yes, the province is old, and yes, there's an aging population thing in the Maritimes, but Halifax does not have that issue. And so we need to balance the modes. You don't want to say, well, old people, we're not going to worry about you. Obviously, you continue to have accessible parking and low floor buses and seniors programs and all those things. Mm -hmm. But if we want to continue to attract young people and healthy people, uh, people who care about biking and bike lanes, we need to be building them. And the other thing is that I get emails for every person who's uh, writing an angry letter to all Nova Scotia or the Herald, I'm getting emails from people who are their immediate neighbors saying, thank you so much. I bike to work at the at the uh, university or I bike to work on downtown or I bike to work at the hospital mm-hmm. every day. And we really need a protected bike network. So it's not just a bunch of 20 year olds on fixies right. it's people looking for a way uh, like for me i try and wa- walk and bike to work because as i was joking with you earlier i don't have time to go to the gym i'm too busy right so the exercise i get mm-hmm. is getting on my things, bike yeah. and biking around the city going from meeting to meeting uh-huh. and i i too would like it to be safer how do you uh, i mean that sounds somewhat uh easily paralyzing when you're getting sort of emails from groups of citizens who are highly opinionated about something but uh, you know how how does that influence your decision making when you know that sort of like there's uh, i guess throwing my assumption in here that there's really no way to to deem which way public support is landing on unless you do something reliable like polling like to what to what degree is writing an email to a counselor the deputy mayor effective right i mean we change uh i change my mind with new data comes forward i'm not one of those old politicians who's worried about being seen to flip-flop on stuff like if i thought this was the right decision and then a whole bunch of new information comes forward that shows it's not the right decision then i'm going to publicly say oh well you know that i've changed my mind and i think that's that's appropriate and normal outside of politics that's how people behave right, right yeah well i guess i'm asking more about <laughs> but, like the social pressure well of... the social pressure thing for me you know if if it's uniformly nobody wants something uh that i think is important that's a really hard thing to fight but it's never like that it's usually 50 50 or 60 40 or 30 70 and and uh, so a good example was a lot of people who are vehemently opposed to the original stillwell beer garden proposal on the zivvy's auto on north park street saying it would absolutely ruin the neighborhood forever when i wrote in my letter to the liquor commission and said to the public well about two-thirds of people support it based on my communications i had people including one guy who's a qc accuse me of being a liar Right. Uh, Queen's Council, right? Like, okay. like a lawyer. You're uh-huh. lying and misrepresenting the facts. Well, and then the Liquor Commission actually published that they'd gotten two-thirds support as well. in the letters, right? I mean, it was uh-huh. tan- it was provable, right? And But but people, you know, oh, how dare you say that my opinion is not factual? Well, it's, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but the other thing for me, and why I started laughing, even as you were framing the question, is simply uh, as a policy nerd, like you who cares about those things i have really ornate and overly complex election promises so i said i'm building bike lanes and right. i got reelected mm-hmm. on i got elected and then reelected saying i'm going to build bike lanes i want a minimum grid my wife bikes to work 10 kilometers each way to burnside drive it's scary it's dangerous all that should be fixed it should be done like a proper modern city mm-hmm. and so 
you know, uh, and it's the same as development. It's the same as supporting the center plan. Uh, a lot of people are against any kind of height on the peninsula. Well, I, I've had two elections where I said, I'm supporting the center plan. It's the logical thing to do. Protect the existing uh, fabric of the neighborhoods, allow density and high buildings on corridors. Well, you're not speaking for us. It's like, I won the election. I won the election on that platform. I am doing what right. I said I would do when I ran for office. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty strong place to be. I said we'd build bike lanes or building bike lanes. Makes a lot of sense. I'd like to think so. I mean, we'll see. I mean, there's always 2020 to see if I'm wrong. Right, right. <laughs> well, I know we're bumping up on the time uh, I said I would let you out by. So I uh, appreciate you taking some time to have a conversation on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Drop by anytime. All right. That's this week's episode of the Offscript podcast. Offscript is a podcast produced by Springtide, and we are a Canadian charity committed to helping people lead change through politics with their integrity intact. Find us at springtide.ngo, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coughlin. Subscribe to the podcast, search for Offscript wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to this show on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates in the right-hand sidebar of this post and get a message whenever a new show is released every Wednesday. Share this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. You can find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash OS31. That's for Offscript episode 31. If you like what we do, support our work. You can chip in $3, $5, or $7 a month over at springtide.ngo slash Offscript support. (laughs) Are we recording again? Uh, we are recording again. Um, before we started, you wanted me to ask you a question, and I forget the question. What question would you like to answer? So there's this thing that uh, happens a lot in Halifax, which relates to bike lanes and transit and all these other things, which is that our, uh, uh, we are never compared to cities our size. Hmm. Right? No one ever says, I want Halifax to be more like Regina or Hamilton. The examples we use are, that are used by the public are when I was in Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver. And then today I had a guy say, you know, there's a debate on Twitter today, this morning before this interview uh, about how come Halifax doesn't have pay by tap and proof of payment on the buses yet. Mm-hmm. And and this guy, he's a great guy. He's a professor at Dal. He's a planning professor. I really like him. But he goes, yeah, they've had that in New York for years. It's like, yeah, the richest city in North America has had the best technology for years. Of course they have, right? So a big challenge for us with all the things we do is we're a tiny city. Our entire capital budget for the year is $150 million. Just to put that in perspective, we can build like one four pad or one sportsplex basically every four or five years. That's all we can do is build or renovate one. Uh-huh. Like we just don't have the money to do everything at once. And we also, you know, Another great example is the, uh, the uh, well, in Vancouver, they have 12 people doing bike lanes. We have four. Well, yeah, but they're, they have a bigger tax base. They have a regional metropolis that's contributing money to, toward all this stuff. They have, uh, they're denser. They don't have the rural areas. We have four people. We have a very small, like the city part of HRM is really only about 330,000 people. The rest of them get right. 80,000 people living in rural. Mm-hmm. And so... We just don't, not only are, for whatever reason, Halifax, to our credit, uh, the service standards in people's minds are benchmarked against the best cities in the world. And that's awesome. But it also is like incredibly difficult to hit that mark. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to get that off my chest. All right. (laughs)